0: following episode was recorded in April 2021. We're releasing it here at the end of June 21. We were off to a good start up until early April when my travel schedule remained restricted. I wasn't teaching on campus. Field research hadn't started. And then boom, April through June brought a return of all those missing pieces from last spring. Don't get me wrong. I welcome the return to the rhythm of growing grass in Northern climates, but maybe like you, I've been stressed about having too many things with a little less help. With all that, thanks to our sponsors for their patience, Dry Plant Food Company, and IntelliGrow, three companies and products I'm happy to partner with to bring you smart and funny conversations with leading thinkers in the golf and sports turf industries. Now, without any further ado, I wonderful conversations with Mike Morris, the golf course and property manager at Crystal Downs Country Club in Frankfort, Michigan, and Professor Lee Miller from the University of Missouri, M-I-Z-Z-O-U. From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Russ.
1: I'm Mike Morris. I am the director of golf course and property at Crystal Downs Country Club. Uh, That's something new. Previously, I was the golf course superintendent. Just this past year, I've transitioned to this director role and we're training a new superintendent who can focus solely on the golf course and not deal with all the other politics and off golf course stuff that I've been doing for many, many years. How many years? Since 1986. I'm an English major, so you do the math. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. What what a treat. We haven't had a chance to chat like this in, in probably since my days at MSU back in the early 90s when most of the people listening to this program weren't even born uh, when you and I uh, got to know each other, because, you know, it's the young kids listening to the podcast. So I guess for everybody listening, this is a couple of old guys who met each other in Michigan 30 years ago, catching up on a, on a lot of different topics. And let me start with this. You know, you're a local guy. You know, you were born in a town of what? What do you got? 1200, 1500 people in, in Frankfurt. And in fact, I know uh, have a unique connection to that town because of my pal Monroe Miller. His wife, Cheryl, I believe originates from Frankfurt, Michigan. And of course, that all connects back to the man I remembered right when I got to Michigan, Tuck Tate. I actually got to meet him before he uh, passed on uh, in the early 90s. So listen, what's it like to be a local guy? You got to be around there, what, Mike, 40 years all in?
1: Yeah, yeah, easily. Yeah, uh, we moved to the area when I was just in grade school, you know, and I lived here. I went to high school here. Went to college and went off in various places, but was very fortunate to end end up back here. But uh, it's awesome that you mentioned Tuck Tate. I got my first job when I was 13 working for Tuck. He owned a a nine-hole golf course here in Frankfurt, the Frankfurt Golf Club. And he needed a kid to drag a hose around and syringe greens. And that's what I did. Uh, Seven days a week uh, through the summer, and that was my first job and developed a strong relationship with Tuck. He encouraged me to go into the profession and his wife, Becky, were, were dear, dear friends. And of course, they were connected also to uh, Monroe Miller and his wife. Boy, you were, you are were digging deep here, Frank. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, I, and I am. And so it's so interesting because like you, I had the same experience. I didn't necessarily have a particular mentor who you know, took me under their wing. But I found something that I like doing. And I did it seven days a week. I didn't think much about it. But I can tell you early on, I went and studied turf. You, as you said so eloquently, and I remember the first time hearing this, uh, is you were an English major. Now, not to disparage English majors, but I will say, Andy Wilson, my director of agronomy at Beth Page and longtime pal, is an English major. I think There must be something about English majors sometimes that you guys wind up being successful at this. But why did you decide to be an English major?
1: That's that's a good question, because mainly because I was stubborn, you know, as I I mentioned, (laughs) Tuck was he was very involved with the turf program at Michigan State. And he really encouraged me, saw my passion for working on the golf course and he really encouraged me to do that but I was stubborn I wanted to blaze my own trails <laughs> and so I, I went to Michigan State I was actually in a social science program and I just fell in love with freshman English and uh, before my first year was up I'd transferred over to become an English major master's degree in English and did some college teaching and uh and I loved it but I hit the wall <laughs> with uh, academia they may you might say and uh Uh, Went back to my first love, which was working on the golf course. Did you go right to Crystal Downs? Was it there at the time or where did you head off to? Well, this is the amazing thing and this doesn't happen. I I would be interested if this happened to anyone else in the industry, but I was finishing up my master's degree program while in the two-year turf program at Michigan State. (laughs) I was school enrolled uh, sort of for my internship Dr. Payne was in charge of the program at that time, Ken Payne, and uh, he wanted me to go to Chicago, and he wanted me to go to L.A., and he wanted me to do all these things. And you know, golf was booming back in the uh, late '70s and early '80s. I mean, it was really taking off, uh, both in terms of construction and terms of careers. I was newly married and had a child, and I just didn't like the idea of doing a quote unquote, college internship in Chicago or L.A. And so since my in-laws were living in Frankfurt and Crystal Downs at that time was not really well known, I chose to take that opportunity instead. This was in 1986. uh, To the dismay of Ken Payne, he did not like that decision.
0: (laughs) And I'm sure knowing Ken, I got to meet him before he passed in my time. I'm sure he let you know about it, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, I didn't have to question his his opinion. (laughs) That's right. Uh, And so I'm an intern at Crystal Downs in 1986, and the superintendent at that time decides he wants to go into golf course construction, and he leaves. Uh, The assistant that was there at the time wasn't interested in the job. About everyone else in the state of Michigan (laughs) was interested in the job, but I just (laughs) happened to be there. So I went to this uh, interview with four Crystal Downs members, one of whom was Tuck Tate. The other one was a local newspaper guy. Uh, Another one was a guy who my dad had actually built a house for. And the other person was somebody who my mom had cooked for at a restaurant in town.
0: (laughs) So I guess we could say you were a truly internal candidate.
1: (laughs) I was truly a small town at its best. Yeah. And so they said, we'll give you one year to see if you can do it. And I've been there ever since.
0: Yeah. And so let's talk about the place where you've had the joy of being that honestly, I've never had the pleasure of uh, seeing. And I hope uh, this winds up being an opportunity for me to motivate myself to get back up into what is truly one of the most beautiful places. I don't think enough people in the United States know that side of the state of Michigan up by the tip of the pinky. And down the side of the pinky as you do the hand, right? Everybody who lives in Michigan shows you where they are, puts up their hand and shows you where they are. So listen, let's talk about this place that you got now. Like you said, everybody else in the state of Michigan was interested in that job because it is as everybody describes, and we'll get into the architectural stuff in a second, but it is really this quaint little joint wedged between a lake and the, the two lakes, and you all of a sudden or what are you? Are you 25,
1: 26? You're in charge of it, right? That's right. And, you know, at, at that time, you know, it's a crew of eight people uh, <laughs> taking care of an 18 hole golf course, three miles of roads, and 300 acres of surrounding property. Very different scene back then, for sure. But to follow up on your comment about where we are, you know, from our clubhouse lawn, we, we look out over like Michigan, the Manitou Islands, and the Sleeping Bear National Lakeshore on one side, and Crystal Lake on on another. And many of the people in America are discovering it as is evidence every summer. <laughs> they flock to the place. It, it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, Crystal Downs isn't your urban classic country club by any means. It's located out of the way. It was started as a real estate development. Two farms were purchased back in the 1920s, and the land was consolidated for home development and resort. In uh, 1929, they just happened to snag Alistair McKenzie on his way from California to New York. I think he may have been heading back over to England.
0: And as the story goes, a sullen McKenzie was dragged north to finish the job and was enlightened when he was got all excited when he saw the beautiful piece of land
1: that Crystal that's, Downs is. Yeah, that's is. the way the story goes. There are lots of great stories. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's true. He, he had to be encouraged to come up. He didn't stay very long, but he did fall in love with the property. It reminded him of what they call in England, the Downs, because of its rolling kind of a farm-like nature. Mm-hmm. So he routed the course and then contacted his associate at that time, Perry Maxwell, to come in and build it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, two great architects. And there are elements of both of those architects. I had a great opportunity to play golf out there with Bob Ranquist, who was at Southern Hills for years. And of course, knew Perry Maxwell design very well. And we're going around the course and he's going, this is a Maxwell course. This is a Maxwell course.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and as the story goes, you know, when I remember being at Michigan State, And I hadn't heard of Crystal Downs until I got on the faculty there. I met you. And it was supposedly the place Mackenzie did right before he did Augusta. And, you know, when you look at these architects and again, you know, I'm starting to get a little architect geek following now because I had Gil on the program uh, a couple of episodes ago. And so, you know, I'm trying to talk a little bit more about something I know absolutely nothing about, but a lot of people are interested in it. What I know about architects is they get in these moods, they get these feelings, the way they view the landscapes, and they start to do similar things. And certainly, Mackenzie did two of my all time favorites the Royal Adelaide and the Royal Melbourne over there mm-hmm. in, in Australia. Two absolutely, uh, absolutely among my favorite places. I saw the Metal Club recently. So I'm in this Mackenzie sort of mood. And I'm wondering is there anything you can see at Crystal Downs when? This week, it's Masters Week, you're going to notice something that reminds you of it at Augusta.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I have not been to Augusta. I, you know, I've talked with Brad Owen. I work closely with their irrigation designer and watch uh, the tournament. And speaking with the irrigation designer, his name's Paul Granger. He said there are a lot of similarities between the two courses, but it doesn't get picked up on television. You have to almost be there. Mm. And one of the things is uh, the changes of in elevation and the contours of the greens are very similar. It jumps right out at you. Mm. Bunker placement uh, with these other courses that you mentioned, like uh, Royal Melbourne, very, very similar in those characteristics.
0: So now, you know, obviously it's got the architectural history. And Mm -hmm. I think I've read somewhere you've been playing around with good old Cornell alum, Tom Doak. Mm -hmm. And I believe both Doak and Mike DeVries, who did the Kingsley Club, right? Mike did the Kingsley Club and just an all-time, another all-time favorite architect. You know they're members at your club, right? So, what does it say when you get two really good architects, uh, not only who recognize beautiful part of America, but join one of the really boutique sort of clubs uh, in America? What's it like about having those two guys uh, playing around your place?
1: Well, it's fun because those guys have a great understanding of golf course architecture and the history of golf course architecture. So, for me, it's fun to discuss that. They're two very different. Uh, people, you know, to work with. I've been working mostly with Doak lately and Tom Doak is in charge of some subtle restoration of the golf course, you know, uh, mow lines and uh, green perimeters and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been there for over 30 years and I walk out on the course with Tom Doak and he'll see things that I've never seen before in the, in the landscape. Hmm. and in the property it's really you're working with really high level people in and, and it's just a joy to be around them
0: and so when you look out upon the land the uh thing that's been happening to most golf courses that are of that ilk that you're in it's been pretty widespread uh tree removal programs i don't know i'm asking the question blind how have you guys uh addressed some of the potential uh, tree issues that come up with some of these old places as they've aged and maybe, you know, you had it for a long time. So maybe you were able to stay off some of the plantings or maybe it's part of the charm.
1: Yeah, that's that's trees are a big deal. Uh, it's one of the big differences between Crystal Downs and a, and a place like Augusta. I want to just back up and say one more thing, what Mackenzie and Maxwell would do, you know, without the help of bulldozers and track hoes, they use the land in a, in a marvelous way. And you know, that when I talk about Tom Doak, seeing things in the landscape, that's what these great architects could do. They could see a piece of land and imagine a golf course on it rather than constructing it from a drawing. Hmm. There's just something about that, that keeps the integrity of the landscape, keeps the shape, the character of the whole environment. And it just comes through in the total golfing experience. Hmm. When it comes to trees, Over time, you're going to get a committee or somebody that thinks the course needs more trees or wants to memorialize someone. It was back in the 90s. We took out about 70 trees that were memorial trees that had been planted around the golf course. And this was done to bring the course back to its original design intent and its uh, appearance and its aesthetics. The the front nine at Crystal Downs is, is really wide open. And we have great uh, historic, you know, aerial photography from the government, and we have old home videos and pictures and postcards that we use to try to keep the golf course looking as much as possible uh, like it did when uh, Mackenzie and Maxwell were on site. And we have we have a criteria list that the green committee uses when. Either planting, removing, or or taking care of a tree. And it needs to check a few of those boxes before anything's done. We keep a close tab on the trees.
0: Well, I think suffice it to say, with a place like what you have there, you better have a plan. Any operation that's trying to manage a tree population, you better have a plan. Now, of course, you know, you said it early and I missed the segue. It would have been the perfect one. I wanted to wander into the trees and talk a little bit more about architecture, but let's get back to the putting surfaces, right? Because this is of course, you know, over the years, uh, you know, you, uh, partnered with Tom Nikolai and you developed the method. I think we, they even called it the Morris method, uh, that you and Tom did a bunch of educating about for a number of years about how to work with your golfers, to find the right green speed. And I got to believe to a certain extent, as I recall it, the pressure for faster greens you thought was a bit of an antithesis to the way the place was designed with the undulations and character that the surfaces you have currently have, right? So talk to me a little bit about how that came about, that relationship and sort of how that's worked for you at Crystal Downs.
1: Well, yeah, that's, I mean, I want to know where to start on this story, but uh, <laughs> but let's just say, if you'd like to hear the full story, tune in to Nikolai or me or whatever in one of our classes, and we'll, we'll give you the full story. But you're right, there was at one time a real strong push for fast greens, and we were struggling with the technology and ability to give golfers fast greens and maintain the turf surface. And a lot of great superintendents were doing it for tournaments. And so there was a big push for fast greens. Well, that's all that the golfers kind of heard and knew, got to go faster, faster. And we knew that they could be too fast at our particular property uh, because of the undulating greens. So the question wasn't like, how fast can you go? But the question we, we asked was, what's the best speed for our greens? And we did a lot of research on it. We surveyed golfers. We uh, used various maintenance practices to manage speed or keep it within a range. And what we ended up with uh, at Crystal Downs is a range from 10 to 11. was really good. And when we get near 11, it's difficult even for some of our longtime members to play the greens. Now at great courses around the country and classic courses that may not even be acceptable today, you know, ten to eleven. And they need to be twelve to thirteen. I have friends who have ladder greens and and the golfers want them that. But I think the key to our research was. Finding the speed that satisfies your customers and is appropriate for your greens. You know, it's different at different golf courses rather than saying all golf courses need to be this. That's
0: right. What I thought was interesting and maybe lost a little bit is many courses have asked that same question, Mike. It's not like there's not a lot of old golf courses that had some undulation designed or created by bunkers splashing sand on them, right? All the variety of ways we have changed things over the years. And a lot of people said, well, we want them fast, change them. Did the discussion ever come up to touch them, to make them softer, easier, more pin position, bigger, blah, 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 which would result in them allowing them to get faster.
1: Right. That's a real issue for some of these classic undulating greens that are out there. You know, the challenges at many venues is there are maybe two or three or maybe six of these elegant, challenging greens, and the other ones are relatively flat. And so it's a funny feeling for the golfer. We really are concerned about the architectural integrity of the golf course uh, at Crystal Downs. It's one of the Mackenzie courses that has been least touched hmm. by designers uh, and architects, not that it hasn't been touched at all. There are a couple greens that people are saying are, are just too difficult. And they've changed, as you mentioned, because of sand top dressing, bunker sand, and so on. And so that's what we're looking at with Tom Doak. How has the green changed in ways because of sand top dressing that maybe have influenced the whole locations on the green? Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a very severe green. It's infamous, uh, number 11. A lot of stories we don't have time for, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just the 91 USGA senior amateur, just look it up or mention it to somebody who was there. Uh, anyway, and, and we actually tore it up two years ago. With Tom's guidance, we maintained the character of the hole, but it was so steep from back to front that it was very difficult to play. It was too difficult to play. We were even didn't roll the green. Uh, Sometimes we didn't mow the green. And so it it had to be changed a little bit. You know, that's the approach we're taking as opposed to like a wholesale. uh, We've got to make these modern greens. We want to do everything we can to keep the character. And we're also acknowledging the fact that things change over time. Uh, In addition to our memories and our looks, uh, (laughs) golf courses also change.
0: And so I remember when you were starting this work with Tom, with the rolling and the mowing, the rotating things the taking data pretty regularly. And you were one of the early guys that was out there that I was, you know, attuned to that was taking regular data from their surfaces. Right. And I think at the time it was, you know as if it was a big deal to take stint meter readings on. I don't know what you doing, six screens or something like that. You know, I've met with other superintendents that have done this. Um, Tim Hires used to collect clippings years and years ago for forever on warm season grasses. And of course, that's in vogue now, as is a lot of the use of data in our world, right? In our lives. You were an early, I would say, an early adopter to this whole idea of using data. But I I want to get to a little bit of that, but before we do, one of the first things I remember you saying is, gee, you know, Frank, I take data a lot and subtle changes in like a mower setup or a reel or a roller or the way they mowed it that day. There's so many variables that you can detect when you take data on a regular basis. I wonder if over the years you felt like you've been able to dial in some of the maintenance standards over time of you taking data where you you think you got a handle on the way things behave when you do certain things with certain pieces of equipment
1: yes you know that's absolutely true and that was a great learning experience for me I mean you don't know what you don't know (laughs) we were (laughs) we were we were going out and saying, yeah, I checked the mowers last week. You know, they, they should be good. <laughs> so why are things changing? Peter Drucker's line that uh, you can't manage what you don't measure rung the bell for us. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, I wouldn't say that I've got it figured out by any means. My superintendent, Don Roth, and I continue to talk about it. There are a lot of variables from mowing heights to rolling to mower setup to maintenance to top dressing to verticutting and all these things. Even aeration has a long-term impact on your your ability to maintain putting greens. You know, We're still playing around with it and the key thing that we discovered was mower sharpness and more setup. We know that all mowers are different. So are all <laughs> mechanics, for that matter. And you have to find a system that works for you that provides consistent cutting quality. That, that was a big thing.
0: And I'm wondering what you think about the latest trend in collecting clippings and growth. What, what I've noticed over the years as you've done this is greens have gotten firmer. Now I know you've always had really good greens. I wonder if number 1, you know, you think they've gotten firmer.
1: You know, uh, that's still something we're struggling with. We have a lot of Poa annua in our greens and we you know, we haven't gone to the regrassing extremes. If we did, you know, then our greens would <laughs> could get really fast and yeah. impossible. Back to your question, you know, growth is a big question mark. We're still trying to figure it out and actually Don and I were talking about it just the other day when we have warm Uh, nights with uh, you know high relative humidity the grass gets puffy and we collect a lot of clippings and those are the days you know the following days we usually have to double cut you know there is something to the growth but that's also tied to weather and then you know we're doing things with growth regulators and, and moisture content and things like that so that's one of those unknowns and I think with some more data collection and a little more learning and technology we can maybe figure that one out too.
0: Well, it looks like you're sticking around for a little while at Crystal Downs, albeit in a new role. Why mm-hmm. don't you talk a little bit about I sometimes think it's a sign of a good stable organization when there can be some kind of succession planning if everyone's really sort of satisfied with the way, you know, the place is operated and there really is widespread consensus that a succession of some sort is going to come with some changes, but essentially that there's a culture in the club uh, that you want to maintain. Is that what this partially was about, besides the fact that you and I are old now?
1: You you hit the nail on the head on both points. That
0: we're old. <laughs> that
1: we're old. There is a culture uh, at Crystal Downs. It's a longstanding family club. A lot of legacy members, you know, very conservative in his thinking, and they desire to maintain the culture above all. Uh, that they've established there. And it's a wonderful place. And uh, you're right, this is part of a a succession plan. And uh, we don't take it lightly. And I think you're right on by saying that strong organizations are looking ahead and thinking about it. You remember the days when we were young and at Michigan State, it was just revolving doors at uh, superintendent offices. And uh, I think the industry has evolved in a positive way and we're seeing some longevity, uh, seeing the benefit of that as well in terms of both culture and in terms of uh, taking care of the most important asset at a, at a property. So, yeah.
0: Well, listen, Mike, I just am so thrilled that we got a chance to catch up. I appreciate you took the time uh, out of your day. I, I know you guys are getting ready uh, soon I'm sure the lake holds you off quite a bit longer than a lot of other people, but soon they'll be there. People will know we'll be out of this pandemic fog we've been in, but that really has benefited golf. Uh, I'm sure the club is getting quite a bit more interest than it used to and I hope you're looking forward to a good season. How many more you think for you there in this particular role? Because it seems like you could just, you know, hang on there until you're in your 90s with how exciting and how much learning you can do there.
1: Well, you're right, Frank. I I love to learn. And there's a lot out there that I need to learn yet. And you know me, I don't like to talk in firm numbers with Greenspeed. I like to talk in terms of a range. (laughs) So I would say the range is anywhere from uh, two to 10 years. All right, that's good.
0: Well, listen, take care of yourself and best to everybody up there. And and, uh, it's so great to chat with you. Thanks a lot.
1: It's been my pleasure, Frank.
0: Mike Morris, the golf course and property manager at Crystal Downs Country Club in Frankfort, Michigan. We'll be right back with Lee Miller from M-I-Z-Z-O-U. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. The Plant Food Company of Cranberry, New Jersey, founded in 1946 by Edward Platts, began formulated liquid fertilizer in 1981 for the golf industry. I became familiar with them in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was being initiated and they immediately wanted to support our efforts to reduce pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. Other universities, such as Rutgers in New Jersey, found plant food programs to be excellent solutions to anthracnose, performing equally to most fungicide programs. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. Here's my chat from April with Lee Miller as we reflect on the early growing season in the southern midwestern transition zone. It's here because it's also a deep dive into fungicide use, foliar and root pathogens, and improving our understanding of microbial ecology. How has the warm season grasses responded to that? Cold snap that they got late. And I've been reading is taking a while for everything to come around. Let's talk about generally how the plants are doing and tell me how the fungi are capitalizing on it in a minute. So let's start with the plants. How they doing?
2: Well, you know, it depends on where you are. It's a pretty diverse state, pretty diverse region. There is definitely going to be some winter kill. Now, luckily with Meyer zoysia, it's a pretty robust plant. It was about mid to late February. We had that real big dip down into the the negative numbers. We were very fortunate that we had four or five inches of snow on top of the ground at that time. So our soil temperatures got down. Our two-inch soil temperatures were around 25 to 27 degrees kind of tickling it a little bit. Now, Bermuda definitely would have had a problem with that. What I'm a little bit more concerned about is what we just had, which was snow last week. What can you say? The only thing you can say about the weather here is I have no idea what's going to happen with the weather here. It's been pretty turbulent because we were two, three weeks ahead of schedule. Early March, folks were going out with pre-emergent. The forsythia was blooming. We were well on our way with spring. And then last week, we got it down into the mid to high 20s. And that's a pretty hard freeze.
0: So the pathogens that bother the warm season grasses, even Meyer zoysia, do they capitalize on this or is that related to also what happens last fall?
2: No, I, I think they're capitalizing on on the current situation and the plant health status now. So, you know, if you've got the weather that primes the zoysia grass to go. Yeah. And then all of a sudden pulls the rug out from under it. We're kind of tracking now today. We're mid 80s. So, you know, I think we're going to get up to 87 degrees today. Mm -hmm. Last week it was 27 degrees. So that's only, you know, a 60 degree difference. We're starting to kind of green back up. You know, the zoysia grass was kind of on its way. The other thing I will say is we've had a lot of precipitation too. Mm -hmm. So we've been very wet. Um, That really is... Is kind of setting everything up for a pretty dastardly large patch season i've been to a couple courses around i've seen some breakthrough particularly from those that maybe didn't put the two preventative fall applications on Mm -hmm. But a lot of guys, I will tell you, are really grasping on to this aspect of putting that preventative spring application on. And this year, I think that would have been a very, very good idea because who knows when you could get the sprayer out? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. You're dodging raindrops, you're trying not to run up the fairways, and who knows? I mean, snowflakes as well.
0: So, has this become a three application preventative
2: problem now, Lee? So we need to do some more research on whether or not you could do one in the fall and one in the spring. Okay. But I have been a, a pretty big advocate of you really need a spring application. We see those breakthroughs, even of the two fall applications, nearly every year, particularly If we have a year like this where it looks like it's going to extend out, if we're going to extend out into mid-May or late May as far as when this window is, you're expecting a fungicide that you applied last October to hang on. And that's just not going to happen, particularly in this kind of climate. So is this problem getting
0: worse over the years, not better? And is that climate or is it potentially the way we're attacking it? Talk to me a little bit about how this patch disease is feeling like it's been getting worse in the last five years
2: well that's a very tough question to ask because you've got a lot of biology there there's a lot of layers to that question frank and and quite frankly that's that's what i expect out of you it's a question with many layers it's so great (laughs) that's right
0: i'm a layered guy i'm like an onion lee you are
2: but you think about what's going on with her. i think a lot of it is related to the climate You know, if we look at what's gone on within the last five years in our springs, they have been wild and wacky. You look back to 2018, we had snow the last week of April and the first week of May is 90 degrees. And we've also had a a lot more rainfall and what I consider to be kind of consistent rainfall, more turbulent, heavy, heavy events. And I think that sparked some of it along. We really have had a reliance on On one fungicide chemistry here, you know, the DMIs and in particular tepiconazole is is sprayed a lot. So we haven't gotten to the question of, is there any change in the biology of that pathogen because of it? But if we just think about nature as a whole, nature adapts, right? So, you know, I'm not saying that fungicide resistance is out there because we don't really know.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That being said, we've had a reliance on that particular fungicide for, five,
0: 10 years now. Yeah. And, you know, not for nothing, but, you know, you talk to your pal, Lee Butler, the other Frank and Lee speaking, that was actually a pretty good one. I thought he came up with that. It was excellent. Yeah. Lee is a great guy. So what we were talking about earlier is that on their best days, root pathogens are not easy to control, whether it's the amount of water or getting it down into the plant, or now we're talking about resistance or timing of applications or wow, the pressure's long. We don't really know how long these fungicides last. Maybe you need a third application. Mm -hmm. Root pathogens remain our biggest challenge, don't you think? And do you see it as just putting sandier soils in and getting our systems draining better?
2: Yeah, so I mean, you're talking about large patch, and we don't really consider that to be a root pathogen. However, it does impact farther down on the leaf sheet so when we're talking about how we apply our fungicides Mm. those leaves that are kind of sitting there looking at us they're the enemy we need to get that fungicide past that it's almost like basal rot anthracnose that's kind of the parallel that i put between large patch and anthracnose that being said the great work that jesse benelli did you know with brandon horvath as his advisor looked at carrier volumes. Um, and that's one thing that we're looking at a lot closer as well. You know, when he went out at two, three, four gallons per thousand square feet, he increased the control. And that makes sense. You've got more of a droplet, you're rolling it off of those those leaves and getting it down to where that point of infection is. And that that's what's really important when we're talking about control. Yeah,
0: and thanks for not correcting me so directly that I, once again, I confuse large packs as a root pathogen, but it doesn't matter. No no one's listening. To, to no, it path. doesn't matter at all. <laughs> so, it doesn't so, matter at so all. So if it is related to anthracnose in your mind, are there things we do to create stress that then create problems, or it's not that much like anthrax.
2: No, I'm talking about just the site of infection. The site of infection. That, that's that's where I kind of really draw that parallel. Huh. You know, if we think about things like dollar spot and brown patch, you know, for the most part, we think of them mostly as, as kind of foliar yeah, diseases. They're foliar. And, and large patch, we can consider foliar too, but it really likes to hit right around the base of that plant. I've seen where also take-all patch gets into this game too. Mm -hmm. So we've got large patch, which is, you know, we consider to be Rhizoctonia solani, but I've seen samples that also have take-all patch in it as well. I think that the worst outbreaks that we have are actually a combination of those two that actually are kind of working in cahoots. Oh, boy. You know, we often look at the Rhizoctonia aspect, and I think that may be the most key component of the outbreak Mm But let's not forget that there are other things that are going
0: on. Well, yeah, there's no doubt it's complicated for sure. And the way the warm season grasses are getting uh, stressed from the cold, that same situation is not so bad for your cool season grasses. Now, nobody likes it wet, but are the I thought I saw even dollar spot pressure was building early, like the season was coming on. Uh, Where are the cool season grasses at?
2: Yeah. So dollar spot, we're still kind of waiting. We're on the edge. We're right on that knife's edge of when we we think the dollar spot is going to come out. And we really look at the Smith-Kerns model. It is a fantastic tool. Mm -hmm. It's something in the back of my mind. When's our first dollar spot outbreak? And what does that model Mm say? And how can we kind of correlate those two things? But when we look at it, we had kind of a spike and then we had the snow event last week and the drop off. So I think when we get to that next spike, that's when we're going to kind of get into it. We're actually we've got a, a really big field research trial that we've got out now where we're looking at those treatments that we're targeting for take all patch and summer patch, but we're watering them in. Ah. So we're watering them in at two-tenths of an inch, which is a lot of water. But what does that do to the dollar spot outbreaks as we go through? So we've done some work early that showed particularly tebuconazole and triademophon kind of gave us a decent little bump, almost leveled that curve off of dollar spot throughout the rest of the season. Well, guess what, Frank? We've got 20 new fungicides. And what do all these, you know, particularly the the new STHI chemistries, the Densicores, You know, what about Navicon? What about the new DMIs, the Rayoras? What are all of these things doing? And are they going to give us even more of that control? So, you know, I've been accused of trying to kill two birds with one stone. I try to do seven birds. That's exactly right. Right.
0: I think the twofer is always the way to go. And you walked right into the last thing I wanted to chat with you about, Lee. Thank you for doing that. The concept of early applications as a potential to reduce the inoculum or lower the pressure later on, I've seen things that have totally said this doesn't work. I've seen a few things that says, well, it works with vinclozolin maybe, but you're talking about testing a whole array of compounds used and watered in, I would assume, early I would assume also philosophically the same idea, targeting something before you see symptoms to lessen the inoculum. I mean, is that what you're going for?
2: Yeah, I mean, when we talk about what's going on in the pathosystem, you know, by the time we see symptoms, that population is already raging. I mean, that eight ball is rolling and you're looking at the other side of it. So particularly, you know, with my earlier work with fairy ring, you know, if you you go after that curatively. know, a lot of times you're going to have to use more applications to get at it. Now, that's a soil borne disease. But when it comes to foliar diseases, you know, we had kind of thought, well, you just kind of apply as close as possible. And then that's what it is. Mm. So we're kind of trying to figure out in some of our trials with large patch, with brown patch, and then also with this fair ring slash dollar spot trial, what does early mean? So, we're actually going out there, we're applying when Zorgia is dormant. So, we applied at 45 degree soil temperature and 50 degree soil temperature, five day averages. I will tell you, we were freezing our knickers off when we were doing it. Huh. But we just don't know what kind of residual long term impact that has because we, you know, it's hard to detect when that particular pathogen population is really stirred up and, and when that infection process is happening. So, you know, I think there's a lot more that we have to get to where that's concerned. Hmm. But, you know, there is some promise that some of these early earlier applications, they also might not stop the next application. So they might not stop when you actually have to make another fungicide application, but they might lower that curve throughout the whole rest of the season. So there's there's two different things to kind of think about here. You know, when am I going to get the outbreak, which is what, you know, most superintendents would be really, really concerned about. But then also, are we doing something to that disease cycle? And when when we see the severity of that disease, when we go out through through the season, and I think it's very complicated. It's hard to just deal out one answer and go, "This is the way it works for all fungicides for dollar spot," because the biology is so different, right? Yeah. Not to mention the chemistry of what we're applying.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more. How complicated it is to discern, but furthermore. If we get into the population reduction business without seeing symptoms, I'm wondering about, you know, again, overusing products, number one. And at what point, I mean, I still feel like I'm, I'm looking into a black box, Lee. I, you know, you tell me I got to go early to keep it at a low level, but there's no one that can tell me how much population I have there that could be a problem. If I'm in doing an IPM program and I'm trying to manage it, usually all I got is symptoms. Or signs, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, whatever it is I'm looking at, and you're suggesting there might be an opportunity to start without even knowing that you're going to have a problem. I'm a little worried about resistance for there. How do you feel about that?
2: Well, I mean, if you look at at other pathosystems, and you're up north, and I'm kind of up north too, but think about spring dead spot. Mm -hmm. So in spring dead spot, you apply fungicides in the fall for something that doesn't even happen in the spring, Mm -hmm. or or you're not sure is going to happen in the spring. The same thing for large batch. Mm -hmm we're talking about those warm season diseases. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a very good answer for you other than to say that if it wasn't complicated, it would have already been done. (laughs) So but when we get into, you know, particularly, we're very applied in what we do. But some of these answers, I think, can come from some of the more basic uh, molecular things that we're starting to do more of. You know, we've got some very good researchers that you know, the Joe Roberts and the Paul Koch and you know, they're looking at the phytobiome. And and when we think about extrapolating that out to you know, what it means, these are the kind of questions that we can start to get at with, well, with quantitative PCR, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. we can start to tickle these kind of questions and, and answers. Yeah. I
0: mean, you're never going to get an argument from me that understanding the biology of any, any pest is going to improve its management overall. And, you know, I think over the years, we've just avoided doing it because we had something like tebiconazole, cheap and effective. When technology is like that and it works, there's no reason to change it. And that's why maybe we don't understand some of these basic things as maybe we could,
2: Lee. Yeah, I mean, the, the curiosity that we have now doesn't often, you know, give us the fruit that's on the tree now.
0: That's
2: right. But we're investing in providing sustainable fruit for the future. And I use that fruit analogy because every fruit grower here in Missouri is in trouble because of that freeze that we had last week. So it's a good thing we're not growing fruit. That's correct.
0: But hey, listen, (laughs) let me let you go, Lee. Really appreciate you taking the time to join me. It's always great to hear what's going on because like you always said to me,
2: what did you say? You can't grow any grass well down there? <laughs> we can grow any grass we want to here in Missouri. We just can't grow any of them very well.
0: All right, Lee. Thanks a lot. Appreciate
2: it. Hey, thank you for the opportunity, Frank. All Take right. care, buddy.
0: Professor Lee Miller from the M-I-Z-Z-O-U. And big thanks to Mike Morris from Crystal Downs. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dry Jack the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass and the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years you can listen to us on Block Talk Radio Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca New York by Nate Richardson big thanks to marketing and business manager John Kiger graphic design Nicole Rossi theme music Tucker Rossi and executive producer peter mccormick i'm frank rossi and hoping that it's not a long time till you hear from me again thank you for joining
2: join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4x e or summit 4x e 18 plus.